Let's pray together this morning, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the opportunity that we have to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and those guests who have come, uh, friends of our church. And here we are in your presence and we thank you for the uh, uh, joy that we have in meeting with one another, in giving, in singing, in reading your word. Lord, you tell us in your scriptures that the, the death of your saints is precious in your sight. It is valuable. It is uh, significant to you. And we come before you this morning uh, rejoicing with Julia Kobe that her fight is over. We thank you that she has finished the course and uh, that there will be for her no more temptation, no more suffering, no more trials. Uh, you have fulfilled your promises to her and we're grateful to you for your grace in her life that she was faithful to the end of your calling. Uh, we rejoice with Julia and for Julia through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for our brother Bob. And oh, these days are going to be hard for him. We pray that you would show him mercy. That you would bring Bob off into our minds that we might pray for him and serve him and encourage him. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the health that he has. I, I look forward to seeing Bob regularly again on Sunday mornings, worshiping with us. Doubtless he'll be serving again. Uh, we're thankful to you uh, for Bob, but we pray that you would help him to grieve uh, well, hopefully, too. Lord, we think of our dear sister Judy Landis and the difficult surgery that she had this week and the pain that she's been experiencing as a result of it. Father, our hope is that this pain would bear fruit in her life and that she would um, find physical healing. Lord, I pray that you would grant her patience in the midst of her recovery. Lord, it is hard to think of eternal things when your physical body hurts so much. Uh, I pray that you would um, be merciful to her and provide relief for her. Grant Don wisdom as he seeks to care for his wife. Lord, there are those in our congregation who, as we come this morning, they're happy to be here because this is the most contact they have with people throughout the week, and they, they bear this great burden of loneliness. Lord, there are some who have burdens that they bear in mind and in heart. It's a lot easier to help ask for help with a broken arm it's not as easy to ask for help with a broken heart and a, and a, a troubled mind. But Lord, you um, love these dear sheep. Help us to care for these members of the flock for Christ's sake and for their good. Give us the perseverance and the diligence to be faithful to these dear saints. Lord, for the women and their husbands who are very near to expecting children, well, there's many of them in our church, and we're thankful to you for all of these babies. I pray for these women as they uh, anticipate labor. And, uh, oh, it is, it, it, I would imagine your imagination and, and fear would, would, be, it would be hard to fight those anxieties and those worries about what's going to happen in the delivery room. Uh, I pray that you would grant them peace that passes understanding. So that's what you do and what you're capable of doing in the lives of these dear women. Help them. Help us to rejoice with the arrival of these new boys and girls into our congregation. Lord, we pray for our country today. We're thankful to you for it. We are thankful to you for the men and women who are 
have left their homes uh, and are serving in the armed forces overseas. Um, Our expectation is that some of them, our fellow brothers and sisters, have already gathered in the time zones they're in for worship on on this Sunday morning. We're, We're thankful to you for the opportunity that they had to worship. Lord, we pray that you would um, grant our brothers and sisters uh, wisdom in, in serving their families well, even as they're serving on our behalf uh, uh, this country overseas. Lord, for our president, we pray that you would grant him wisdom, uh, that he would um, uphold righteousness, that uh, you would direct him in a, in a good path, that you would surround him with wise counselors. Uh, Father, grant us a better government than we deserve uh, and use our congressmen and our women and senators to uh, serve the country well. Lord, our, our prayer is that there would be peace in our land so that the gospel would be able to go forth um, boldly and freely and joyfully. We pray that you would do these things for the sake of your dear son. Oh, it is our great pleasure to pray in his name, the one that you love, our Savior, our coming King, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen. Now, if you in your life have reached the stage uh, where uh, you like to be agitated about how everyone younger than you is ruining uh, the world, you know, kids these days, uh, you might take a sinister satisfaction in a report that was released three weeks ago by the Barna Group. So they surveyed practicing Christian millennials. You know, millennials, that's the generation that's going to ruin the world. They, um, they're the people between 18 and 34, And a practicing Christian, for the purpose of this study, is someone who identifies as a Christian, agrees strongly that faith is important in their lives, and has attended church once within the last month. Now, according to the report, 47%, half, almost half, of practicing Christian millennials believe that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hope that they will share the same faith. So, in plain English, almost half of practicing Christian millennials believe that evangelism is morally wrong. There were a lot of responses to this uh, report, Christianity Today, that magazine called it disappointing. Relevant magazine said that the millennials are the most evangelism-averse generation on record. And the Catholic news agency asked, are millennial Christians really killing evangelization? It turns out that no, they're not really, actually. Uh, In fact, uh, by and large, practicing Christian millennials, I know a lot of them, many of them who are doing this, are actually doing a fairly good job of representing Jesus in the world. And I think one of the reasons that this survey said this the way they did is because uh, millennials face different challenges than have been faced in our culture before. See, in in the United States, being a Christian used to bring social capital, especially in the American South. If you're in the American South and and you say, I'm a Christian, well, it used to bring with you some respect, some some integrity. There was something true about you. But now, especially on college campuses, those who claim to be Christians are, are racist, misogynistic bigots. It doesn't have the social capital it used to, to have. 
They talked to uh, some of those uh, Christian millennials who are leading ministries on college campuses, and they said that in particular now there's two moves that are uh, particularly challenging for representing Christ today. The move, the first move, is the move from this gospel is true for me to the move, it is also true for you. It's true for me, it's true for you too. That's a difficult move to make. Second difficult move is from this, Jesus is making my life better too. You have to decide whether you're for him or against him. There's a lot of people who are willing to applaud your personal piety and the personal way that Jesus has helped you. They're thrilled about that. But don't tell them that they have to decide about Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure those are necessarily new challenges, but they're, they're poignant challenges, significant challenges. I want to think with you for a few minutes this morning about the call the Bible makes to all of us, uh, regardless of our age or stage in life, to represent Jesus, to, to tell the good news to others in your neighborhood, at, at school, at work, or your club. I want you to think for a minute, for just a minute, do you know anybody who does this really well? Anybody who represents Jesus like that really well. It was about a year ago that Billy Graham died, and for 50 years he was the most well-known face around the world of publicly telling the good news of Jesus. But, but do you know any, anybody? I, I know a lot of people who are good at it. I can identify people in our church, but my mind immediately goes to my father-in-law, Wayne. Many of you have met Wayne. Uh, for several years, Wayne has been involved in a ministry in his church of, uh, I don't know what they call it, but uh, of meeting people after the service. So uh, the church uh, that they um, attend, the auditorium seats several hundred people, if not a thousand people, a big auditorium, and behind the auditorium is this big foyer, and then behind the foyer is a room, they call it the fireside room, and during the service, the pastor will say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, and you want to talk to somebody about it today, right after the service, go in the fireside room, and there will be people there to meet you. Wayne is one of the people who is there to meet you. Uh, someday when we build again more, we'll have a room like that. It'll be great. By that time, maybe Wayne will have moved down here and he can be in our fireside room, but we'll see here. Uh, Wayne meets people there and he talks to them about their spiritual lives, about what they believe, and, and he invites them to turn to Jesus. He prays with them. He calls them during the week and follows up. He's been doing this for years. And he always carries around little uh, gospel booklets with him that he shares with people. And he, he frequently asks us to pray for friends of his or people he knows, people he meets, and pray for their spiritual needs. Wayne is really good at this. He's faithful. He's passionate. He's a gracious representative of Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? I want to take you to a, a passage of Scripture this morning that argues that the greatest evangelist in all of the world actually is God himself. He's the one who testifies about his own son. And the testimonies that we share, the sharing that we do, are always in his wake, in his shadow. In a sense, uh, we are farming in fields that God himself has already cleared because of his testimony. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to talk about God's testimony uh, today. We're going to look at verses uh, 6 through 12. And I want to show you two things in the text. First thing I want to show you is I want to show you what, what God testifies about. And then secondly, we're going to talk about why God testifies. So what does God testify about and why does God testify about it? 
You have not talked to anybody in your life about Jesus that God has already not testified to. That's very good news. Let's read these verses, though. Chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Here's what the Apostle John writes. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. I'm sure this is all clear to you so far, right? Verse 9, here we go. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, verses 6 through 9 here of this paragraph focus our attention on what God testifies about. And the main idea is actually in verse 9, God testifies about his Son. That's what he testifies about. He testifies about his Son. Now, remember that John wrote this letter to a group of Christians in and around the city of Ephesus, and they were Christians that were belonged to a church. The church that they belonged to used to be a lot bigger, but people left. They left to follow a, a different form of Christianity. There was a splinter group, and, and they were claiming to be true followers of Jesus, and everybody that was left uh, in this, this church was kind of confused and a little uncertain. So John wrote this letter to shore, up, shore them up and to, to give them some assurance. And, and he keeps circling in this letter back to three themes, three ways that you can know that you really know God, three tests, if you will. There's the love test. People who really know God love brothers and sisters. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's the obedience test. People who really know God listen to what he says. And then there is the truth test. People who know God confess that Jesus is God's son. And this paragraph is about the truth test and how God himself testifies that Jesus is his son. And God uses three witnesses to testify to his son. Verse 7 tells us he uses the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now we have a lot to talk about in this passage for a couple of different reasons. This is a perplexing passage. Uh, let's start by talking about water and blood. What, what does it mean? I am, I'm fairly certain that it was clearer to John's original readers than it is to us. This is probably language that he used face-to-face with them, and he wrote it down, and they immediately knew what it was. Well, I wasn't there, uh, so I'm not sure. It has to do with the truthfulness of who Jesus is, but what's he talking about when he says Jesus came by water and by blood? Well, let me give you some options. Christians have thought about this in three different ways. I think the third way is the right way to think about this, but I'll, I'll give you the other two. Um, some people think that the water and blood in this passage is a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. A reference to Jesus' crucifixion. John's the only gospel writer who mentions this. Um, do, you, do you know about crucifixion? So most of the time when people were crucified... Um, most of the people who died from crucifixion actually died from asphyxiation. They, they suffocated. So in order to breathe while you were hanging on the cross, you had to push 
up with your feet into the nail that was in your, your feet. You had to push up with that so that you could push yourself up to breathe, and, and you would breathe, and then you would collapse and fall back down. Uh, the pain or the muscle spasms would get you. And to breathe again, you have to push up in order to breathe. And there were people who would hang on crosses like that for hours and hours or days, days. The way to hasten somebody's death when they're being crucified is to break their legs. That's what happened uh, on Good Friday. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem did not want Jesus and the two thieves uh, next to him hanging there on, to, on the Passover. So they asked Pilate to order that their legs would be broken so that they couldn't breathe and they would suffocate. Can, this, is, this is horrible. So you're hanging on a cross for hours and then someone comes up with a hammer and breaks your legs. It's terrible. Well, you, you would suffocate uh, relatively Uh, quickly when that would happen now john's gospel says that when the roman soldiers went to break jesus legs they found that he was already dead but one of the soldiers took a spear and pierced his side and i wrote down the verses john 1934 says this instead one of the soldiers pierced jesus side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of here it is blood and water The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. John's writing this. I saw it, he says. He knows, writing about himself in the third person, he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies to it so that you may believe. Well, notice here this passage, testimony and blood and water together. Uh, I understand why some people have thought that that's what John's writing about here in 1 John 5. The problem, though, is, uh, well, two reasons. One, the order is different. So in 1 John 5, it's water and blood, and in John 19, it's blood and water. I think that's important. The other reason I don't think this, it's, he's talking about the crucifixion is because um, John is thinking about three witnesses, three different things. There's the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the blood and water at the crucifixion are the, are the same event. It's the same thing. They're not two different events, two different details. So... I don't think it's the crucifixion. There are other followers of Jesus who have a second opinion about this. They think that the water and the blood is a reference to baptism in the Lord's Supper. Oh, okay, all right. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. You can see how water would make you think of baptism. The problem, though, with this view is that, that nowhere in the New Testament is, is blood, is, is the Lord's Supper ever referred to by just the phrase blood. Sometimes it's called the cup but not blood. And another problem is that this passage is about how Jesus came in the past, not how his work is ongoingly manifest to us. It's a past event. So I don't think it's the baptism in the Lord's Supper. I think the best interpretation of this passage, and it's a traditional one, is that by water and blood, John is referring to the bookends of Jesus' ministry, his own baptism and his own crucifixion. Both of these events are tied to the Lord Jesus and his unique identity as the Son of God. Both of them stand as key pointers to the person and work of Jesus. John writes in verse 6, he says, He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, remember what John's opponents believed. 
There was a teacher in Ephesus at this point in time when this letter was written who believed that Jesus was born just like any other Palestinian peasant, and he was a Palestinian peasant until the day he got baptized, and then the Spirit came upon him, and the Spirit enabled him to teach and do miracles, and then on the cross, the Spirit left him, and he died just as a Palestinian peasant. So that's what John says. He did not come just by water, but by water and blood. He was the God-man when he went into the water. He was the God-man when he hung on the cross. Now, just as an aside here, notice how their particular view of salvation um, matches this uh, view of Jesus. See, these false teachers that John was dealing with believed that salvation was really a matter of enlightenment. That to be reconciled to God, you just needed to be enlightened in your mind. You needed to be spiritually enlightened. And they said, Jesus received the Spirit, and we can receive the Spirit too, and we can be enlightened, and that's how we're reconciled to God. And you know, it's not really, we don't really need to talk about his death, his bloody death. It's, it's the enlightenment that matters. Salvation comes from being enlightened and knowledge and knowing things, not sacrifice. That's not what the apostles taught, though. We're not reconciled to God by Jesus' inspirational life. We're not reconciled to God by his provocative teachings or his wonderful example. It's his death and resurrection that reconciles us to God. If Jesus did not die as the God-man, then his death has no meaning for us. If Jesus did not die as the God-man, his death is meaningless for us. Our faith is bound in these historic events. At the beginning of his ministry, the baptism, at the end of his ministry, his crucifixion, water and blood. And the significance of these two events is made known to us by the Spirit. The Spirit receives top billing in verse 8. Did you see that? He's listed there first. The Spirit, the water and the blood. And the reason he receives top billing is because he's the one who magnifies these truths about the Lord Jesus. Think about what John the Baptist saw at Jesus' baptism. Um, I think I wrote those verses down for you. I, if not, I meant to. John one thirty two. There it is, the testimony of the Spirit. Look what it says. Then John, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The Spirit was the sign to John the Baptist that Jesus is God's chosen one. The Spirit didn't make him God's chosen one, but he was the sign that Jesus was the chosen one. This passage, I think, it reminds me of what the, the Bible says uh, the Spirit would do. John fifteen twenty six. When the Advocate, when the Spirit comes, Jesus said, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What else has the Spirit done? Remember, the Spirit is at work in inspiring the Old Testament Scriptures. He was at work inspiring the Old Testament Scriptures that prophesy about the coming Lord Jesus. Or remember the work of the Spirit in convicting the hearts of men uh, and women through the preaching of the apostles. Or or the work of the Spirit in convicting the world. All of this is part of God's plan to testify about His Son. His life bookended by baptism and crucifixion, magnified by the Spirit. 
And we accept this message because it's from God. It's the point of verse 9. We accept human testimony. We listen to human testimony in a court. You can be convicted of a crime because of human testimony in a court. But God's testimony is greater because God is talking about his son. This passage reminds us that we are never more in sync with the Spirit of God than when we are speaking about and worshiping and following the Son. See, the Spirit, J.F. Packer said this, is like floodlights that shine the light on the Son. So we see and worship the Son. Spirit-filled worship exalts the Son. The Spirit is pleased when we sing songs like, Show Us Christ. He's pleased with that because he wants us to to think about the Son. God-honoring worship rejoices in the Son about whom he testifies. Remember what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When the Lord Jesus returns, it's going to be a good day. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. God is the greatest evangelist you know, and his goal in testifying about his son is that we would marvel at him, that we would treasure him, that we would find him a great beauty, great treasure. So that's what God testifies about. Now, we have to pause here for a minute and talk about the text itself. This is going to be so much fun. Um, If you were raised like I was, reading the King James Version, or if you have a King James Version in front of you, you might notice a significant difference in the text, between the text in front of you and what is written in the New International Version. Um, If you don't have a New International Version, but you have an NIV, you can look at the footnote uh, uh, to find uh, the the, the difference. So um, in my translation, verse 7 says... For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and there's a little A there. Do you see that in the text? Okay. If you look down at the bottom of your page, there should be a little note there that says A or something like that. And it says, late manuscripts of the Vulgate. Vulgate sounds like it should be a character or a ship on Star Trek, but it's not. Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church used for hundreds of years. Late manuscripts of that Latin translation read, they say this at verse 8. There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the, and then we go back, Spirit, the water, and the blood. And then there's this little note. Not found in any Greek manuscript before the 14th century. Well, what is going on? Why do our translations differ so much here? Now, I have that little note in the NIV. The ESV doesn't have that note. It ignores the issue completely. And the King James is longer than what I have in, my NI, in the NIV. So what's going on? Um, it's a similar issue to what some people ask me when we were at 1 John 4.19. Now, when I was growing up, and we used the King James all the way back in the last century. The verse, we learned 1 John 4.19, it says, We love him because he first loved us. Except that's actually not what the 1 John 4.19 says in my translation, the NIV. It says, We love because he first loved us. Well, what happened to the him? 
church has lost both the him and hymns. It's all gone. I don't know what happened, right? So what's happening? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a lesson this morning on something called textual criticism. We don't talk about this very much because we don't need to talk about it very much. Um, uh, I hope it will help you become a better Bible reader. I hope that in the next few minutes I will increase your confidence in the scriptures. Um, One of the loudest criticisms of Christianity today in the world is that the Bible is unreliable, that we shouldn't trust these, that, that this is so vastly different than what John or Paul wrote or Matthew or uh, that we, we shouldn't trust it, that we have no reason. And, and those are ridiculous claims. And I want to talk about that with you for just a few minutes. All right? Well, here we go. Whether it's okay with you or not, I'm going to proceed. So... When the apostles first wrote the letters or first wrote the gospels, they'd write it down and then it would be delivered. I'm going to focus on the New Testament. We could do the same thing with the Old Testament, but I'm going to focus on the New Testament. Those original books and letters, gospels, were delivered into the hands of the recipients. They, they ended up in Colossae or they ended up in Ephesus or they ended up in Timothy's hands or Titus's hands. And, and they were read, those letters were read over and over and over again. They were read publicly, they were shared, uh, and they were copied And they were copied and distributed. Now, uh, they weren't copied on a Xerox machine. And they weren't copied using a printing press. They were copied by hand. And today we have in our possession in the world, there are thousands and thousands of ancient copies of the text. Not not complete copies, but we have um, uh, bits and pieces and thousands of pieces of the New Testament books. We have a few complete collection of books and and we have the pieces all over the place. Um, If somebody were to go into your house and look around, I bet they could gather collections and pieces of the Bible. You, You probably have a verse or two written on an index card somewhere and you maybe have a wall hanging somewhere with a verse on it or two. Um, and if they were to go into a devotional book that you have, maybe there's a verse written. I could probably collect quite a bit of texts from your house. Well, um, in the ancient world, there were texts everywhere like this. And, and the texts that we have of the New Testament, they are older and more numerous than any other ancient document. I'm going to give you some statistics here. For example, most of you have heard of probably the, the epic poem, The Iliad by Homer. Okay, So Homer wrote it about 800 B.C. And the oldest copies we have date to 400 B.C. So 400 years later is the earliest copy of Homer, of the Iliad, and we have about 1,700, about 1,800 copies of Homer, the Iliad. So 400 years later, 1,800 copies. Uh, Julius Caesar, another ancient author and emperor, wrote a book um, uh, uh, called The History of the Gallic Wars, Sometime he wrote it, sometime around 60 B.C. or so. The oldest copies we have are from the 9th century, 900 years later. And we have about 250 copies. So um, for Homer, we have 400 years later, we have about 1,800. And with Caesar, um, 900 years later, we have about 250. In contrast, so the New Testament was written between A.D. 50 and 100. The earliest copies we have are from A.D. 130, only 30 years after the last books were written, and we have 5,795 portions of the New Testament. So a vast, a vast collection of New Testament texts. Now here's the problem. They're not all different. They're not all the same. They're not all identical, these 5,795. 
Um, and here's, here's where people will criticize. They say, look at all these differences, all these different readings. How do you know that you can trust this? Well, most of the differences have to do with spelling errors. How do you spell Gethsemane? Can you spell Gethsemane? If I handed out pieces of paper and asked you to spell Gethsemane, how many of you would get it right? I wouldn't. I never spell it right, correctly. My grammar is terrible too. Um, I once asked a group of people to write down on a piece of paper where they want to go for uh, their vacation, and I asked 50 people this, this question, and I got about six different spellings of Hawaii. So a vast majority of the differences are spelling errors. Sometimes, sometimes the spelling errors are, 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 or the word errors are, are picky little things. Um, the word for y'all in Greek, you guys, use, uh, is very similar to the, the Greek word for us. Um, and, and sometimes one text will say, you guys, use. And sometimes it will say us. What's the difference if Paul were to write a letter to the Colossians and say, God loves yous, as opposed to him saying, God loves us? Is there a real, is there a real deep difference there between those two things? Paul certainly doesn't deny that he would not be included in the group of, of people God loves, but those are some of the differences. Uh, none of the differences pertain to important teachings of the Bible. There is not a text, an ancient text in existence that says that Jesus is not the God-man. There's not a text, an ancient text that says that he did not die on the cross for our sins. There's not an ancient text that says he is not coming back. There, there are no differences like that. But, but this is one of the more significant ones. Uh, elsewhere in your Bible, the ending of Mark and John chapter 8, Jesus' conversation with that woman taken in adultery. Those are some of the more significant ones. And so translators have to make a choice between all these texts that they have, which belongs originally. We have, here you go, ready for this? It's a good way to think about this. We have 102% of the Bible. We have 102% of the Bible, and part of the task of translators is to figure out which 2% is not original. And they follow certain rules. So they look to see which manuscript is the oldest, which one of these is the oldest, which one is the closest to the original. That's probably more likely to be original. Or they look for the text that is shorter or harder to understand. Because monks, when they would be copying these texts, we're so grateful for these guys, but these monks who were copying these texts, they, 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 they tend to smooth things out a little bit. They, well, this can't be right. I'll fix this. So they try to make things smoother. So shorter and harder to understand are probably more original. Um, now here's the question. Why didn't God make the text perfect? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that solve problems? Right? Wouldn't that make this easier? Wouldn't that make it easier if we had 5,795 exact duplicate copies? That, I think that we would end this whole conversation. We wouldn't have to worry about this at all. Why didn't he, he work in such a way to do that? But God doesn't work that way, does he? Um, this church would be better served if you had a perfect pastor. Why doesn't God make angels the pastors of his churches? Right? Wouldn't that be better? Maybe an angel is pastoring a church somewhere, but you are stuck with Scott and me. Right? 
If God really wants the testimony about his son spread throughout the whole, uh, spread throughout the halls of Penn Manor High School, why doesn't he send perfect teenagers into the halls of the Penn Manor High School to share the gospel with friends, to testify about him? Instead, what we have is we have imperfect, struggling servants, and that's how God accomplishes his work. That's how he has always accomplished his work. So we had imperfect people copying these texts. Now, here's what I think happened in 1 John 5. Using your imagination here with me. I think there was some scribe one day copying a Latin version of 1 John, and he came to this line about the three witnesses, verse 7. There are three that testify. When the text said, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and he thought to himself, you know what? This reminds me of the Trinity. There's three members of the Trinity, and there's, there's the spirit and the water and the blood. And, and it's likely he probably, on the margins, wrote this down, his brilliant insight. You, you think your Bible, the study notes, is the first time there was ever notes in the Bible? Well, no. Uh, they're old, and sometimes people would write comments in the side, uh, their valuations of the text. And this is brilliant. So we have the Spirit and the water and the blood on the earth, and we have uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit in the heaven, and this is just beautiful and wonderful. Um, uh, the problem with that, though, is it doesn't really coincide with what John is writing here. I mean, it's a nice insight about the Trinity. That's good. We're all for the Trinity. This text, though, is about how the Father testifies to the Son through the Spirit. And the addition is about how the Father, Son, and Spirit testify together about the Son. So it's not quite the same, but it's not begrudge him the opportunity he takes to think about the Trinity. That's good. But then somebody came along and saw the note in the margin and thought, oh, I've got to make sure that this is in. He thought it was part of the original text, so he decided he had to write it in. It's a fine statement about, of, about the Trinity, what's, what's in the, the King James and, and these older manuscripts. Uh, and, and sometimes critics will say, when they're defending the King James, have you ever read a, a track like this? I have. They'll say, here's why you should only read the King James, because in every, major, uh, every modern translation, they take out the Trinity. Or they'll say, here are 15 times that the NIV takes out the blood of Jesus. I've read tracts like that. The problem is that I'm not sure that the Trinity belonged here in the first place. It's just not old enough to belong. And in this case, there's actually some evidence that the Greek here in the 14th century was a translation that somebody made from the Latin back into the Greek, which is not the way the Bible works at all. There are people who study these 5,795 texts for a living. They're great gifts to the church. Which 2% of the 102% we have of the Bible is not original? And this is how God has preserved his word for us. Thousands and thousands of manuscripts and gifted scholars and teachers. Thus ends my lesson on textual criticism. Um, If you want to know more, I can recommend some great books about it. Um, the, The biggest critic in the United States at this point in time about this of... Uh, uh, having a reasonable view of the New Testament text is a, a professor by the name of Bart Ehrman. He teaches at uh, one of the schools in North Carolina. Uh, there are gr- uh, lots of great... He's written several books. You can read those if you want, but there are great responses from uh, evangelical scholars. I can recommend to you a YouTube lecture series by Dan Wallace. It would be really helpful. Um, the texts we have are, are trustworthy, and God has, has preserved through these manuscripts and these people his word. Now my lecture's over for, for real. Remember the text, though, what the text says. 
God has testified about his son. God is the great evangelist through his spirit. He's the most important witness. By the spirit, he has paved the way for you to go and testify about his son. This week I had to go to Kathy's office to exchange key fobs for our cars. It's a long story. I won't go into all the details. But I walked into the office and I said to the front desk, I'm here to trade this key fob with my wife, Kathy. And she said, oh yeah, I know she already told us. Let me, let me call her. My wife had paved the way for me to go and be there. And God the Father has paved the way through the Spirit for us to speak about his son. You are never the first and never the most important witness to the good news about Jesus Christ. That's wonderful news. Now, we have to move on to the rest of the text. All right, so we talked about what God testifies about, and now I want you to think uh, with me about why it matters, why God testifies about his son. In short, God testifies about his son so that we believe in him, so that we will believe in him. He speaks about his son so that we believe in his death, his identity, his resurrection, that he's the atoning sacrifice. I love about John 10, 11, and 12. Um, John, he, does, he writes here the way he always does so many times. Um, he, he'll say one thing positively, and then he'll say the opposite of it negatively. He does that all the time. Um, if you believe... Verse 9 says, uh, verse 10, whoever believes, accept his testimony. Whoever does not believe, there's a negative, God has made him out to be a liar. Ooh. Here's a warning. If you don't believe God's testimony, you are calling God a liar. It is serious. You're here this morning and you're hearing me say this. God has testified about his son that he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you don't believe this, you are calling God a liar. John Stott says, based on this verse, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, but an evil to be scorned. We don't look at people who don't believe in Jesus and we say, oh, that's really too bad. That's just unfortunate. We, we look and say, that is a serious offense. It's a serious offense to call God a liar. If you refuse to believe what the Father says about the Son, you do not know God, you do not love God, you do not have a relationship with God. Why would you? Because you think God is a liar. You think he's not telling the truth about his Son. That's serious. This is the second time in John where John says people call God a liar. In 1 John 1.10, he says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. We testify about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but he says, uh, if, he, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are found to be false witnesses. We're lying about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he, he did not raise him, if the dead, in fact, are not raised. Is what God says about his son true or false? Here's this move that we have to make, right? Jesus has changed my life. You have to decide about him. And if you will not identify him as God the son, you are calling God a liar. The second set of contrasts is in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Actually, verse 12. 11 establishes it. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Now the two contrasts, verse 12. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no life without Jesus. That's a warning. But there is also no Jesus without eternal life. That's a word of assurance. If you believe in God's Son, you have eternal life. It is impossible to have eternal life without Jesus. That's true. But it is impossible also to have Jesus with also having eternal life. Because eternal life comes with Him. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Here's a reminder. Eternal life is a gift. It is a gift for all who believe. It's not a reward for those who live a good life. It is a gift for those who will receive God's testimony about His Son. Now we talk about the implications of this belief all the time. Acknowledging that God, uh, uh, receiving what God says about his son um, changes your life. And we spend a lot of time talking about the implications of this, uh, the implications of your belief that Jesus is God's son, that he's the savior. But here's where we start. Do you believe what God has said about his son? Do you believe that he is the savior? Do you believe that he applies, that it applies to you? That he's not just the Savior, but your Savior. If so, you have eternal life. Alistair McGrath says that there's three stages of faith. He he wrote this. First, I may believe that God is promising me forgiveness of sins. Second, I may trust that promise. But third, unless I respond to that promise, I shall not obtain forgiveness. The first two stages of faith prepare the way for the third. Without it, it's in, they're incomplete. And he uses an illustration of penicillin. Penicillin was invented, the antibiotic by Alexander Fleming was first produced for uh, use in Great Britain. So penicillin has saved thousands of lives who would have died from blood poisoning. So three stages of faith with penicillin. I have to accept the fact that the penicillin exists, that this medicine in this bottle exists. Number two, I have to trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. Then he writes, but nothing will change unless I receive the drug which it contains. I must allow it to destroy the bacteria which are slowly killing me. Otherwise, it would not have benefited from my faith in it. It's the third element of faith, the swallowing of the pill um, for the cure of blood, that brings the cure of blood poisoning. So faith forges a link between the cross and resurrection of Jesus and ourselves. Faith unites us with the resurrected Christ, he says, and makes available to us everything he gained through his obedience and resurrection. If you have the Son, you have life. There is no life without Jesus. There is no Jesus without life. So who's the greatest evangelist you know? Who's the greatest evangelist you know? It's God himself. He has testified about his son. That's such good news. And we follow in his wake. He's the God who's gone before us for the sake of his son. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we are thankful to you for your testimony about your son. Romans tells us that you testify about yourself through creation. All creation testifies about your uh, invisible attributes, your divine power, and everyone on earth has seen your creative work. And you testify about your son. John said that 
The Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Father, we are thankful to you that you, by your Spirit, testified about your Son. And, and those of us who believe, we, we, we recognize that it is the fruit of your work in our lives, and so we thank you. We thank you, Father, for rescuing us through your Son and testifying about him to us. Even as we pray this morning, Father, we're, we, we, we can think in, in our pews, the chairs downstairs, we can think about the Sunday school teacher or the Awana leader or the, the mom, dad, or friend who told us the good news. They came and told us what you have testified about through your spirit and the water and the blood. We're thankful, Lord, I mean, as, as we'll come to the table this morning to publicly again testify to our faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, we're thankful to you for the confidence that this brings us to, that you are the one who testifies. You're the greatest evangelist because we confess we feel woefully inadequate. But it gives us hope, confidence, that you testify about your son. Help us as a congregation to be faithful and following in your wake and walking in your shadow and plowing the fields that you have cleared because of your great testimony. You are a great God and in your love you have rescued us from our sin. Thank you for the privilege that we'll have now of worshiping by taking the Lord's Supper. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.